Well, I'm excited this morning to get to talk to you guys about the book of Numbers. Um, I've always claimed to be a numbers guy, um, but that's been more math-based than uh, the book of Numbers, but I have quickly been transformed into a book of Numbers guy. I love this book. Um, I'm really um, thrilled at how confrontive it's been to uh, my faith and my view of God. Um, I think it's a very important book. It's a book that will hopefully uh, be impactful for you guys, and I want to encourage you, give you some um, helpful tools to be able to read through and study through the book of Numbers yourself. Um, One of the things I wanted to remind us of is, especially when we look at the Old Testament, there's kind of three layers. You can think of a cake or a parfait or whatever you want to think about when you think of layers, but um, the first layer we got to look at is what happened. So just the events of history, what has transpired, um, those events are going to feed into the second layer, which is how God related to a specific people, um, his chosen people, um, Israel. And then from there, we're going to look at God's overall plan. That's the third layer of God's redemptive plan of history. So we want to see what's happened. It's important where it happened, who it happened to, when it happened. Um, But we want to also understand in the context of God's personal relationship with the chosen nation Israel. And we want to understand then at the top level, big picture, what is God accomplishing for his glory um, and out of the story of redemption that he's planning. Um, But so in that frame of mindset, I hope you guys are excited um, for the book of Numbers as we look at it this morning. Um, I wanted to ask you guys, what is your experience in the book of Numbers? So I'm asking the audience to engage a little bit this morning, get everybody woken up. Hopefully you've had a cup of coffee, but positive or negative, maybe what other people have said about the book of Numbers, feel free to chime in. What do you guys think? What's your experience? Yep. Yeah, it's a huge chapter. It's like almost 100 verses in chapter 7. So yeah, they list out tons of offerings um, for peace offerings. It's the longest. There's a huge feast that Carrie talked about in the book of Leviticus. Yeah, chapter 7 is a huge chapter that has the consecration of the temple, uh, the tabernacle, sorry. Um, What else? What else stands out when you think about the book of Numbers? Any experiences or have anybody else brought up the book of Numbers to you? What else? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we see uh, the Abrahamic covenant promise of him growing a nation. Yeah, we see that in the book of Numbers because Numbers, I mean, it's titled the book of Numbers because of the numberings, right? There's two major ones, one at the beginning of the book. It's a census. Um, God wanted to count the nation of Israel, uh, all the men of age 20 and above. And so you see, wow, God has made this promise clear, like he's grown a huge multitude of people. Um, we see that in the book of Numbers. Man, you guys have a positive experience with Numbers. I had, I had a negative, yeah, Carrie, what's that? Yes, yes, yeah. There's lots of sin and uh, judgment for sin. There's a lot of death, um, not just with God using his chosen nation to um, wipe out other nations who have been disobedient, but inside the nation of Israel, there's judgment for sin. Um, my experience has been, I've had, I've had people bring up the book of Numbers as like, you, you think this is consistent with the God of the New Testament? Um, you, how does this make sense, you know? 
God is killing off all these people. I mean, there's um, a story in here about a guy who broke the Sabbath. Take him out, stone him. He's dead. I mean, how does this really reconcile with what we believe to be true about God? And it's been hard. There's people that bring this up and they want to understand, okay, or they don't understand. They just want to talk trash about Scripture and think it's inconsistent. So I think it's a difficult book. Um, There's lots of positives um, as well, but I think it's a book that um, is going to be one that's worth studying and digging into. It's not worth avoiding um, because people are going to have questions about it that aren't believers. And we want to have a prepared response and an understanding of who God is and how he's been acting um, specifically in the book of Numbers. So how does Numbers fit in the big story? So we've had... A couple weeks, and it's been straight out of time, so I'm going to give a quick overview, um, starting from in Genesis. God chooses Abram, a specific man, right, and he makes promises with him, changes his name to Abraham, gives him land seed blessing, right? I'm going to be with you. I'm making these covenant promises based on who I am. Um, he's super old, has a son, Isaac, right, and the covenant's passed on to Isaac and his son, Jacob, whose name changes to... Israel, and he has how many sons? Twelve sons. Good. All right. You guys are remembering. You're doing great. So twelve sons travel to where? Egypt, right? They go down to Egypt through God's providence provision through Joseph. He goes through this trials, um, but it was on purpose. Um, He wanted to provide for the nations surrounding, so they end up in Egypt. In Egypt, they grow as a multitude and a nation, but they become enslaved, right? And then the Pharaoh dies, passes away. They enslave Um, Israel, and they use them to do all these big projects and pyramids, and then Moses comes around, and we have Moses' generation, right? That's where we're, the people that we're specifically going to be looking at in the book of Numbers. So that's where we come to, they're in Egypt, Um, all these massive miracles happen where God actually rescues his people out of Egypt, brings them through the Red Sea experience, down to Mount Sinai. If we could pull the maps up, um, a lot of Numbers is going to have to do with travel, So I wanted to provide a map so we understand physically on the planet Earth where this was happening. This really happened to real people in real history. So I want us to see where they went and uh, understand what they were seeing even around when they were there. So the title of the book of Numbers um, doesn't really give a great descriptive experience. It's really a travel log um, is what it is. It's a historical narrative, but it gives us the history of Uh, When they're at Mount Sinai, which over here is right in the bottom uh, between kind of the Gulf of the Suez, if that's what it's called, I can't read, Suez, and uh, the Gulf of Aquaba, right there at the bottom. Um, So they start out there in the book of Numbers, and they start with um, trying to to gather up um, and prepare an army, right? They're trying to prepare to go on a conquest to the promised land. Um, So this is... uh, uh, a map that just shows what it would have looked like based on what we know historically. There's lots of cities in this travel log that don't exist. Um, so it's not like 100% sure this is the exact line that they, uh, but it's a kind of a trajectory um, of, of the path that would have been taken all the way from Egypt down to Sinai and then up. Um, and and uh, as we'll see, there's lots of wanderings. But um, in regards to the title, the Hebrews actually like, have a different title. It's actually the fifth word of the first verse of Numbers, and it's in the wilderness. That's what they call the book of Numbers. They call it in the wilderness, which is a a descriptive title of the book. Um, 
Moses actually wrote the book um, to the people of Israel around the last year of his life. So it would have been kind of a historical review. He wants the people to remember what has happened. It's important uh, for them to, to not forget what God has done and the experiences that they've had up to that point. Um, there's a couple outlines that I think are going to be helpful for us to just run through. So if you're taking notes, um, try to make this as compact as possible, but there's a geographical outline. So I want us to understand places that they traveled throughout. So chapters 1 through 10, they're actually packing up at Mount Sinai. So they start out there for the first 10 chapters. And then chapters 11 and 12 is the journey to Kadesh Barnea. Barnea. <laughs> Barnea. So they come up from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, just on the south side of the promised land um, that God is going to provide for them. And then chapters 13 through 19, they're actually in the wilderness. Chapters 20 through 21, they journey in the plains of Moab, um, which is actually to the, the east side. So they actually come down and travel around Edom um, and end up in the plains of Moab. And then the uh, last chapters, 22 through 36, they actually end up camped on the east bank of the Jordan River just beside Jericho. Uh, which should be a familiar story. So they're just um, outside the promised land. So the travel log is they're going from Mount Sinai and they're coming to right at the edge of the promised land to enter in. Um, Timeline-wise, um, we actually cover a span of about 40 years in the book of Numbers. Um, from chapters 1 through 14, we're actually in the second year post-Exodus. Um, chapters 15 through 19, we just start the third year of post-Exodus. And what you need to understand when you're studying Numbers is the last verse of chapter 19 and the first verse of chapter 20, there's about 38 years that just passes by as your eyes breeze down to the next verse, okay? There's a huge gap of time um, that was intentional, that's not covered, that's not talked about, um, which we'll get to. And then the chapters 20 through 36 actually cover the 40th year post-Exodus. So we're covering 40 years, but really we're talking about Maybe two full years um, that of, of history that's covered in the book uh, from a time standpoint. So now that we understand a little bit of where they're traveling, what time frame's being covered in the book, um, we need to understand some themes that we're going to look at as we study through some important events that happen in the book of Numbers. The big theme um, and thesis statement you can write down um, as kind of a study guide for the book of Numbers is past promises will prevail in spite of present problems. It's very alliterative, concise, a few people that like alliteration like me. Past promises, what God has said he will do, will prevail, are victorious, will happen, come to completion, in spite of present problems. And I think um, that is a, a very helpful thesis statement, a guide, a tool um, to, to dwell on as you study through the book of Numbers. Um, for us today, as we study through, I also want us to look at a couple of themes that we're going to see. We're going to see God's holiness. Specifically, we'll see God's holiness, manif holiness manifest in his justice. God's justice. He will judge sin. We also will see God's holiness manifest in his faithfulness to his promises. God is holy and perfect, set apart in the way he judges sin. It's a foreign idea to us sometimes. His judgment towards sin, it's not the way we would look at it. 
because we are sinful. And his faithfulness is set apart. It is perfect. It's 100%. It's worth trusting. It's reliable. He's faithful, 100%. We, we think about uh, batting averages, right? If you can hit 33%, you're like, boom, worth a million bucks a day or something in baseball numbers. But God is 100%. He's always faithful to his promises. He will keep his promises. So those are important character qualities about who God is that he is revealing to us about himself through the book of Numbers. We're also going to see, one, that man has a heart problem. We, we come out of Exodus and through the book of Leviticus and we see that man has a sin issue that the ceremonies and sacrifices and feasts can't fix. There's, there's an internal heart problem um, between man's sinfulness and God's holiness um, and that there needs to be a mediator. So God's holiness... There needs to be a mediator, man's sinfulness. Those are huge themes that we'll look at um, as we study in. So there's going to be a, an outline that this is the this Bible study outline is what I call this one. So chapters 1 through 10, God is preparing, okay? Chapters 1 through 10, God is preparing. Chapters 11 through 16, God is punishing. That was chapters 11 through 16. And chapters 17 through 36 is God's patience. So more alliteration, more peace. Had a huge benefit from lots of uh, Bible study tools and guidebooks, so I am not great in thinking through all the alliteration. So some of resources were used, John MacArthur, some Bible study notes. So you probably bump into some of these um, outline and alliterative tools um, as you study the book of Numbers as well. So Let's look at the first group of God preparing the nation of Israel to the conquest of the promised land in chapters 1 through 10. So God in chapters 1 through 10 has his people at Mount Sinai and he is looking to do kind of two groupings. He's looking to organize the nation of Israel and he's also looking to their orientation, how they relate to God. So the organization of Israel is kind of chapters 1 through 6. God is trying to prepare a mob into a nation, into a fighting army. Okay? These are people who were enslaved in Egypt. Um, they weren't operating under their own rule um, as, a, as, a, as a nation by themselves. So he's provided them um, a lots of instructions and regulations, and he's created a theocracy where God is in charge of this nation, and they are to follow and obey him. And he wants to organize them around his tabernacle. If we could go to the next slide, um, we actually find um, that the organization of the camp was set up just like this. So we've got kind of groups of three tribes to so the northeast, south, and west, and then the tabernacle is right in the middle, and then the, the Levites actually surround the tabernacle. Um, so he's organizing them for transportation. Um, we've got a huge group of people Estimated between two and a two and a half million. So when you think about um, Kauffman Stadium, right, and uh, Arrowhead, if you put those combined, 100% packed, it's 20 times. 20 times that amount of people um, we're dealing with in the nation of Israel. So it's a huge amount of people that God is organizing, and he's centering it around himself. I mean, this is part of the Abrahamic covenant, that God is going to be with his people 
This is a huge change in how he's fulfilling his promises because he's come to dwell with them. He's in the midst of them. It's a huge blessing, and, and Israel's excited, right? I mean, they are gearing up for God's promise to be fulfilled. They're with God. God is leading them by a cloud and a pillar of fire, and he's dwelling among his people. He's actually bringing them into the land that he's promised them. This is the first time in Israel's history where they have a chance to actually see all of these promises to be fulfilled that God made to their, their uh, patriarch father, Abraham. So Israel is gearing up to, to a great amount of excitement for God's promises to be fulfilled um, as they're being organized. And then with the, the remaining chapters in 7 through 10, we actually see the orientation. So how Israel relates to this holy God who has come down to dwell with his people in the tabernacle and how they're supposed to relate to him in regards to worship and the consecration of the tabernacle. Um, huge amounts of gifts and sacrifice are made because they are a sinful people in the midst of a holy God. God is preparing his people to fulfill his promises, and it's important for us to understand that this was a happy time, a, a time that they were excited about. If we look at Numbers uh, chapter 6, it actually gives us a great um, famous blessing. Um, it's called Aaron's Blessing, where it says, verse 22, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. What a huge blessing of God's presence, his, his face to shine upon you. This is um, something that um, is important for us to understand when we look at the full context of numbers. So they're packed up, they're organized, they're ready to go. They got their marching orders, and God is going to lead them. Um, they're going to obey as the tabernacle moves, they move. So um, there's a cloud, and when it rests over the tabernacle, they sit and they camp. When the cloud moves, they obey. And clearly in chapter 10, um, and even at the end of 9, it's, it's clearly indicating that's what Israel did. They were obeying. They were in right relationship to their holy God. And then we see a change. They're, they're heading up. So the next section we're going to look at is chapters 11 through 16. We see God punishing Israel's sin. So they're, they're heading up to um, Kadesh Barnea. If you could go back a slide for me, Nancy. On our map, we're heading from the southern tip here of their trip all the way up to number 12 there on the right or over here right below Mount Hor, potentially, is Kadesh Barnea. It's a famous location um, in Israel's history. It's not something that you bring up as an obscure historical place. Um, it's a very um, stark reminder of um, the events that transpire there. But on the trip there, there's actually some disobedience, some complaining um, that starts up amongst this giant nation of Israel. And Israel starts complaining on the journey to Kadesh Barnea. In chapter 11, we see there's complaints about misfortune, um, and that brings about burning. God brings down burning fire around the outer parts of the camp. Um, this is mediated by the people's cry to Moses to pray to God to subside the fire and the judgment. 
Again, we see the rabble or the mixed multitudes um, craving. They're craving meat. They're complaining, saying, this was, in, in Egypt, we didn't have this problem. I'm tired of manna. I want meat. And God provides. He provides quail, but he also provides a great plague. Judgment for those that had this unholy craving, this rebellion against God to say, I want this, and it was better before you were here, God. Your provision for us is not enough. And there was a plague and judgment. And we see God's view of it in in Numbers 11, 20. It says, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, did we come out of Egypt? See the rejection there. They're rejecting God's provision. That's what's important for us to understand when a complaining spirit Why did we ever come out of Egypt is a rejection statement saying, God, you are not good enough. We want what we had. And then also in verse 12, we see Miriam, who is uh, Moses' oldest sibling. It's his sister. And Aaron coming to speak out against him. So not only are they complaining about uh, their misfortunes and the food, but they're complaining about God's chosen leader, who God has appointed. There's rebellion amongst family members. This is interpersonal strife that we're seeing that's painful for them to deal with. And, and God actually speaks and says that um, Moses, he confirms Moses as his leader, and Miriam is actually um, struck down with leprosy, um, and she's cast out of the camp. And the camp is stuck there until uh, for seven days because she is unclean, and she brings him back in. So there's lots of complaint on the trip up. You know, when you got kids in the back seat, are we there yet? Are we there yet? They're getting disgruntled. Um, but it's sin that God's having to deal with, right? It's not just um, unrest in the camp. It's rebellion against a holy God. But worse than that is what happens when they actually get to Kadesh Barnea. We actually see this complaining of Israel returns into flat-out rebellion against God. So at Kadesh Barnea, we actually um, have a, a famous event that maybe you are familiar with. Um, have you ever heard the children's song, 12 men spent the spy in Canaan, 10 were bad and 2 were good? You ever heard that song? Well, that's, that's this event. It's in the book of Numbers, in case you didn't know. So uh, historically, uh, we actually know that from the book of Deuteronomy that the people actually requested this. And God said, yes, it is okay, go do it, send 12, one from each of the heads of the tribes to go spy out the land. Um, and if you flip over uh, to chapter 13, we're going to look at um, what they saw and their response as they came back. Remember, God has brought his nation out of Egypt, rescued them, provided for them, organized and oriented them towards himself. He's bringing them to fulfill his promises, bringing them into the promised land, and they're right on the cusp of entering, and they spy out the land. Twelve spies go in, and two come back in chapter 13, verses 27 and 28. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. They brought back two men carried on a pole, like a giant amount of very, in my mind, grapes that are like the size of plums, probably. I mean, they just must have been amazing. It was a a huge amount of produce. And then 28 says, however... The people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. 
So we see that there's a report there that's kind of mixed. They have some positive feedback. Yeah, it looks great. But there's obstacles. There's people there that we're going to have to come up against. And I, I don't know if we can cut the snuff. We see there that there's doubt. There's unbelief in God's promise and provision. But if you scroll down just a little bit to verse 30, we see um, a much different response, a contrasting response, not one of unbelief, but one of faith. We see in verse 30, it says, But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. What a contrast, right? What a belief in God's promise to say, let's go up and occupy it. It's been given to us. We are able to overcome it because of who our God is and what he has said. A statement of faith. So we've got these contrasting opinions uh, from the spies, but um, as we see down in the beginning of chapter 14, um, the response that was given, there was actually an exaggerated response a report that was given from the bad spies um, to the people that said, basically, no way, we're not doing this. And the people's response was, great, let's go back to Egypt. But not just, let's go back to Egypt. They wanted to basically start a mutiny. They wanted to overthrow the leadership and go back to where they were. This is um, not just... Um, a struggle to believe in God's promises. It's a total rejection of God's promises. Not just a mutiny, but they want to actually return to slavery. That's how bad this is. That's how twisted their perspective is, that they actually want to go back into slavery. They don't want to be a separate people. They don't want a separate land. They don't want to bless other nations. They don't want God's presence. That's the level of rejection that's being expressed here. There's, there's a huge example here for us to understand as a negative example. When we look at scripture, we want to see positive examples of this is how we're supposed to live. This is how we're supposed to respond. In Numbers, we get great examples of what not to do. And we see here basically a manifestation of dissatisfaction. Right? We need to understand they're dissatisfied with what God has provided and we need to understand that the dissatisfaction is connected directly to sin against God. It's important for us to evaluate in our own hearts, where are we expressing dissatisfaction? How are we rejecting what God has provided? I think we need to know that there's um, not, that circumstances aren't the reason for us to complain. It's not an excuse to complain. Complaining reveals the condition of our heart. And I love this, this quote. It says, sinful dissatisfaction tells us more about our souls than our circumstances. We need to understand that this is a red flag. We need to evaluate at the heart level when there is dissatisfaction that's manifested. We can't just blame, oh, it's, it's my coworkers that make my job so miserable and makes me have no joy and no no expression of gratitude to God, or, you know, it's my spouse, or my kids, or my financial problems. You can't blame the circumstances. It's a, it's a heart issue. Our orientation to God needs to be in check. We need to be aware of discontentment in our own lives, because it's, 
rebellion against God. So let's look at God's response to this. We need to understand that we are sinful, but God is holy. And we need to understand sin from God's perspective. Okay? If we don't understand how God views our sin, then there's no response of repentance. Right? That's what repentance is, is saying, I'm going to see my sin as God sees my sin. So let's look at God's response to the nation's rejection of God in Numbers 14. Flip the page over 14, chapter, or chapter 14, verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. So he actually started out, God was going to start all over just like the, the golden calf, right? I'm going to smite all these people, and I'm going to start over with you, Moses. And Moses, again, as Glenn talked about, pleaded on behalf of God's glory and God's faithfulness and said, God, there are people in Egypt who will look and say, ah, God, you weren't able to accomplish your promises. You weren't able to, to fulfill what you said you would do. But he pleaded with him to pardon, and he does. He doesn't um, strike them dead right there. And verse 21 says, But truly as I live, the eternal God, as long as the eternal God lives forever, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. There's another guarantee, a promise. This will be accomplished. Guaranteed. None of the men who have seen my glory, seen my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. This nation, this generation of Moses was robbed of a huge blessing because of their disobedience. Robbed isn't even the right word. I take it back. They weren't robbed. They gave it up, right? They said they didn't want it. It was a blessing that they missed out on because they rejected God's promise. So that's... That is a huge historical turning point in our story, right? There was excitement. They're gearing up for God to fulfill these promises, and then they reject and sin and disobey against God, and now they're condemned to wander and die in the wilderness. They're going to be wandering for 40 years. This is a total 180, a total flip around from what we saw, all because of a lack of faith in God's promises. You don't have to flip over there, but I do want to read um, Hebrews chapter 13. You can write it down as kind of a cross-reference, but in Hebrews chapter 13, it talks about this event. That's why it's important for us to understand the events in the Old Testament, because so many times it's referenced, and you read through in the New Testament, and you kind of just glaze over stuff because you don't really know what it's talking about. But here in chapter 3, it says, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But those who were disobedient. And here we see the ugly face of sin that's revealed here in verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter rest because of unbelief. Unbelief in God's promise. We need to beware of unbelief manifested through dissatisfaction, discontentment, through grumbling, complaining, and whining. We need to learn the lesson 
from the book of Numbers that God is holy and he will judge sin. And we are required to obey. So we have a need, and we need that need to be met through God's provision. We'll see in the next section here that God's patience ensures his promises will prevail. So chapters 17 through 36, we see God's patience. If you flip over to chapter 21, we're going to quickly run through the bronze serpent historical event. In chapter 20, Miriam dies, uh, his sister dies, Aaron and Moses rebel. Um, The waters of Meribah are mentioned often in scripture. That's where Moses struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock as God commanded. Um, And Aaron and Moses are also denied access to the promised land because of their unbelief. And then we also see the death of Aaron. So we see a transition point in history. We're, We're transitioning from the old Moses generation to the second generation of Israel. But here in chapter 21, there's still some rebellion, but we, we see a, a different type of provision here. It's something that um, is a theme we see throughout the Old Testament of a response of faith. But what happens is um, the people are grumbling and complaining. God sends serpents, fiery serpents, poisonous snakes, um, to bite the people that starts bringing about death. And they cry out to Moses, Moses, plead before the Lord for us. We need a mediator to bring about a solution to solve our problem. We have rebelled against God. We need atonement. And God tells Moses to make a bronze serpent. Make a bronze serpent and raise it up among the people. And God is truly accomplishing a miracle here, right? It's not God saying, I'm going to create an idol, everybody worship an idol, and then that's going to bring about a solution. No, God's banned idols. He forbids any worship other than himself, but he provides um, a picture, right? Something for them to look to physically to solve their physical ailments. And what they're doing is they're putting their trust in God's provision in this event. So we see the people's sin, God's just anger. We see that there's a need for a mediator and that God is patient with them. He provides a provision of healing for their physical problems. And the reason this is so important is because Jesus actually brings up this event. So everybody's familiar with John 3.16, right? Everybody knows that verse. Are you familiar with John 3.14 and 15? A little bit. All right, let's flip over to the book of John real quick. I know we're running short on time. John 13, and the two verses right before, in 14 and 15, it says, And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. That's this event, okay, that we were just talking about. So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This was an example of putting your faith and your trust in a holy God to heal you, to bring about saving. And Jesus uses this as an example of putting our faith in total, I love that Carrie described, our total leaning and dependence, right? The transference of sin, but also it's a full dependence on a provision of God's sacrifice, of Jesus Christ. This is an important example of God's patience, his faithfulness to provide salvation, In the book of Numbers, um, you'll see these themes manifested in several different ways, but I thought these were big examples for us to kind of really look to and point at. But we see in the book of Numbers that God prepares his people for the fulfillment of his promises. 
but the people are punished since they did not believe in his promises. Nevertheless, God's patience sees that his promises will prevail and they will come to pass. So the rest of the book shows the travelogue. They try to go through Edom. Edom says no. They come out with an army. Edom is actually the nation of Esau. So they travel down and around and they come up. They actually have some wars that they fight some other nations. There's more sin issues that come up. But God brings them to um, the edge of the Jordan just outside Jericho. And he's bringing them into the promised land as they transition from uh, one generation to the next. So application questions, I think, are always probing and helpful. And for us, we want to look at God's holiness that we saw in the book of Numbers. So the question, I think, that we need to evaluate is, do you take God's holiness seriously? Do you take God's holiness seriously? Is it, is it important to you? Is there reverence in your response to who God is, in your prayer, in your study, in your pursuit of him? Does God's justice towards sin bother you? I challenge you to read through the book of Numbers and just evaluate your heart response as you're reading through it. Do you disagree with God's judgment towards sin? If you do, it's important to not just sweep it under the rug, but to say, this is who my God is. I need to know about God's justice because if I don't embrace and understand God's wrath towards sin, you cheapen grace. We need to read through numbers and be kicked in the mouth with our view of God's justice, right? We need to be confronted with this because there's no enduring response to who God is if if we have a misunderstanding, a false God that we're believing in. It has eternal impact. So we need to actually know that God is holy, that he is just, and he must and will judge sin. I love Psalm 86, um, verses 8 through 13. If you drop those down, just look through them. And 8 through uh, verse 10 really just lifts up who God is, that he's holy, that he's above all, he's the creator. And this is the humble response in verse 11 you get. You say, teach me your way, O Lord that I may walk in your truth. I want to be in line with this holy God and his plan and his desire for my life. Teach me, Lord, to walk in your way. And then I love the second half of verse 11. It says, unite my heart to fear your name. Verses uh, 12 and 13 go on to have a heart of gratitude and response that we just heard from um, JD a Sunday or two ago where we talked about a grateful response to all that God has done. There has to be gratitude, but if we miss reverence, if we miss this fearful response of a holy God, we're missing a step. We must have reverence for our holy God. What about unbelief? Unbelief is something we saw displayed here in the book of Numbers. So the question for us and that we need to evaluate in our hearts is, are you trusting in God's promises? I guess a a precursor to that question would be, do you know God's promises? I think sometimes unbelief is bred in our hearts because of a laziness to not even know the promises of God, that he will build his church. That impacts the way you live and the way you participate in your church body. Do you trust in God's promises? How do you respond to God's provision and plans for your life? 
I think that's an important daily question for us to evaluate our heart response. I think we have some apathy towards our sinfulness, right? We tend to sweep dissatisfaction and discontentment under the rug. But that's not how God views it. We need to have a heart of repentance and have a right response to a holy God in dealing with our sin. And thirdly, does your life display to others that you are trusting in God's promises? We can't be obedient to our Heavenly Father if we're not witnessing to others, sharing the good news. I think it's important that our lives is not just lived in isolation, but that we share it. We share this good news with others instead of having a perspective of just almost grabbing our neighbor's hand and just walking them to hell, dropping them off and on our way to heaven. I mean, that's a nasty picture, but isn't that the way we live sometimes? Are you sharing truth with others about who this holy God is? It's not a joke. We need the book of Numbers. We need to be reminded of God's hatred towards unbelief and his provision of salvation and grace for those who trust and lean on him for salvation. This is an example of how we are not supposed to live when we look at the nation of Israel as a negative example. So let's put our trust in God because just like we see in Numbers, his promises will prevail. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Holy Father, God, we know that you are a just God who hates sin, that you can't be in the presence of sin. You despise it. It is anathema. It is ugly. And Lord, we are a sinful people. And we ask God for you to do a work in our hearts and in our lives to transform us, to change us through your provision of Jesus Christ. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the grace and the sacrifice that's been provided for us. And I pray, God, that you would change us, help us to be more like Jesus, help us to live a life of repentance that runs to you in reverence and in repentance. God, we love you. We thank you for the book of Numbers. We pray that you would impact and change us so that we can love others by speaking truth um, to our brothers and sisters in Christ and to those that are lost here in Lawrence. We love you, Lord, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.